All right, folks, shalom, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem on the Land of Israel Network. Shalom and welcome to the heart of Jerusalem. I'm at Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov in Nachlaot, Jerusalem. I look out the window, and I see grapes, and they're red, and they are... Um, they're the children of Israel. <laughs> they are they are the wine of the future. They are the rebirth of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And as I'm here in Beit Midrash Salam Yaakov, that means that I'm with Rabbi Mike Foyer for Spiritual Cafe. Rabbi Mike, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to see you. Listen, it was not the same without you last week. I had people tell me uh, that they felt less Jewish uh, about their Judaism, and, and they just felt less connected when we uh, were not together for Parshat Akev. So you just want to throw a little guilt in there on top so we can be more Jewish? Uh, you know, that's, that's right. That's a redeeming. That's right. If we can have some guilt, that redeems it. But I think um, more than that, um, we shouldn't feel too guilty because we were on vacation. That's right. Family time trumps everything. That's right. It trumps everything. I don't, is that word even legal anymore? Can we even say trumps? Is a that small t. A small t. Okay. Uh, not, only, not only does family time trump everything... But one of the one of my favorite aspects of Eretz Yisrael. Let me just say backtrack just about myself personally, Yishai Fleischer. When my wife asks me, as she does, given her Hungarian background, she says, "What do you want? What do you want? Do you want me to get you something?" She doesn't sound like that at all. But she says, "What what uh, do you want me to get you for your birthday or something?" I always tell her the same answer. I really don't want anything except for vacation. I love going on vacation. I love traveling and going on vacation with my family. I don't need to, to ditch the kids. I like being with the kids. I love, I love vacation. I just enjoy it. I like going to different places. And the best, one of my favorite things about Eretz Yisrael is that when you go on vacation, it's totally guilt-free. It's like another mitzvah. You see the land, mitzvah. You meet good Jews, mitzvah. You learn about the history, you learn about the Torah, you learn about the place, you see God's creation. And it's like mitzvah, mitzvah, mitzvah to be able to, you know, create uh, uh, th- that feeling that you are learning Torah by just walking the land. So it's like guilt-free. When you're like, let's say, in America and you go, you're living in New York and then you go down to Florida for a vacation, you know, you're, you know if you, uh, for me, when I was doing that kind of stuff, I felt a, a tinge of like guilt about that because I'm like, wow, this is really nice. Do I really like it? It's a little bit like looking where you're not supposed to be looking, you know? It's like, uh, it's just a sense of like, you know, if you, if you feel the call of Eretz Yisrael, it's a subtle, and I'm not trying to guilt everybody here, a subtle sense of betrayal. Oh, that's a big word. <laughs> uh, without getting into that, speaking of guilt, um, <laughs> I think it's because life here is a healthy embodiment of, of uh, the Jewish purpose, meaning there is a way, like the Ramchal teaches us, that everything one does can actually be in the service of God. It's not just a technical system of laws and commandments, etc. The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you wake up, the way you eat, how you interact with your kids and the Jew you meet on the street, it can all be in the service of God. And so what but I hear is there's believe, a wholeness. Do you believe that walking the land of Israel is Torah? Um, absolutely. I always look forward. In fact, my minhag on Yom Atzimut, on, on Israel Independence Day, is to at least find four amos, you know, four cubits of the land of Israel that I haven't walked on before. And sometimes it means going out uh, into the water below my house to a different spot. I'll get technical about it if I have to. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, but it's an embodiment of the whole idea of what it is to walk in the world. And the difference is, is that, you know, how we walk in the world has a lot to do with the context in which... We do it. So in America, when you're getting away from it all, you're on vacation. I don't even like that word vacation, by the way. I think it's a, a rather deceptive. I think of family trips. Because to me, I'm a little bit too Western trained. Vacation sounds like let relax, 
do nothing. I don't know about your family, but we uh, it takes work. Takes work with five yeah, kids on the road. Yeah, but you know what? I had my phone on airplane mode for seventy nine percent of the trip. Okay, uh, no fair. I fair. my my phone was off, and my 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 nerves, my my tension level dropped. Absolutely. That's what I mean. My the the the, the, yeah. the nervousness about getting stuff done on time. It was like, should I have another piece of steak, or should we hang out for a little bit more on the beach? By the way. One of my favorite things in life, and I want to thank the Lord, the God above, Hashem, God of Israel, Amen. is I, want, I like to be in the water in the Mediterranean after sunset. Yeah, it's the sun too. sets, and you have literally about 50 minutes, but you can push it to an hour if you're willing, in the warm soup water of the Mediterranean, and the colors are changing and changing, and yeah. night is coming. It's, it's, the great, it's the greatest. It's it is, the greatest. It is an amazing thing. I love it. All right. So, but summer's over. So ex- exactly. So 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 that's why we weren't around last week. You were on vacation. I was on vacation. That was good. We were we were both vacation at the same time. Uh, vacation or or trips, summer break, whatever is over. And today is the first day of the rest of our lives, you and I, because our kids have got back to school. Woo-hoo! <laughs> you know, we don't have as much camp here in Israel as we have in America. Yeah, well, it's because you know in this country they call August Kaitanat Safta, right? It's the it's the it's the grandma's camp. The problem is that you and I, as immigrant, the grandmas don't live on this continent. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, let me uh, s- uh, correct you, and it's fair that you didn't make this uh, that you, that you made that mistake because my mom moved here this past Thursday. Oh, I knew she was coming, and she was here this past Thursday. Oh. I came back from the four days Shabu of Monday. trip: Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. On Thursday, my mama. And my sister and her husband and her baby flew in all at once wow. to EY, to Eretz Israel, Amazing. on, on, uh, on uh, 004 of uh, LY004, pulled in at 6 in the morning to Ben Gurion Airport in Lod, and uh, yeah, so, so that's changed for me. That's a huge shift. Amazing. It's huge. Congratulations. It's huge. Yeah. In fact, I just drove my mom over here. To uh, uh, her uh, future apartment, so very exciting for her and and for me. Okay, so so today though is the first day of the rest of our lives in the sense that school started. Kids are going back. Some two million kids in Israel are going back to schools. Uh, the uh, you know the the mayor of the city sent out congratulations and just all kinds of stuff is happening. The kids go back to school. It's huge. Teachers are going back to work, and you and I are also going back to work in the sense that finally we could actually concentrate and, and clean up our house and clean up our mess, fire back those emails. It's been a long and awesome summer, but it's time to get back to work. Am I right? You are absolutely correct. So let's do it. Okay. And as vacation is over and kids are going back to school, it's also the end of the month of Av now, and we're about to enter Elul. Now, every year I try to make this plea to people, and that is... Elul is the preparation month for the month of Tishrei, for the holidays of Tishrei. Before uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, cleanse yourself in this month, Elul, that's coming in just a few days, we call that HaMelech Basadeh, the king is in the field. So this whole month we prepare for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur with Slichot, with other things. The problem is, is that a lot of people miss the month to get ready. So I always like to tell people before the month, to prepare for the preparing. Why are you always preparing to prepare? Okay, <laughs> prepare, prepare to, to, uh, 
to to prepare for get ready get your books out get your time make your time get ready for Elul time like the Rambam says wake from your slumber right Sunday morning we're going to start to blow the shofar the ram's horn every morning in shul and it is to me one of the most powerful and evocative moments of the year that first reminder like hey are you awake and you think to yourself, well, if I'm there in shul the first day of the month, I hear it once, why are we doing this every morning? Because the answer is, is that you think you're awake today. But if you really spend the day trying to summon up the deeper sides of your consciousness, your intentionality, your aspiration for what you can be, every day you awaken more and more. So the time comes when you reach Tishrei itself into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur when you're actually fully awake and ready to choose what type of life you want to live. I just came up with the idea. We need a, we need a chauffeur sound app. We need the app to sound for these thirty days. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, we need an app. We we need this. We need an app to, and it's really it's really a spiritual alarm clock, right? That's what it, it is. It absolutely because it's supposed to touch that deep, slumbering core. You know, this is a time of year when um, it's game time. You game know, a lot, time. A lot of people like say to me, "What do you mean? During Elo, we're supposed to like start doing more mitzvot, and we're gonna like." pull one over on God or or we got to like tip the scales in the in the divine chalkboard on the scoreboard up high to, so we can, you know, schlep in a few good deeds and make it in under the line. I always say, no, that's not what it is at all. The reality is, is a lot of the time we're walking, we're sleepwalking. But if somebody puts you under pressure, right, when it's right. game time, you want to know who you really are. You want to know who a person really is. Right. Put them under pressure and see how they act. Very good. So this is what's happening now in Ellen, especially in the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We're not faking it. And we're not trying to fool God. What we're saying is that when push comes to shove, you say to me, show me who you really are. When God says that to me, then I'm willing to do that. And in order to, to do that, I have to wake it up. I have to actually dig inside myself and say, okay, but who do I really want to be? And that's, that's the season we're entering soon. Right. I like that very much. I like the pressure analogy. Uh, Rabbi Tendler, my, my America Rav, says that it's a little bit like uh, when you get up to the batter circle and you add those extra weights on the bat. Yeah. You add the extra weights on the bat so that when you get to the actual batting... You're going to knock it out of the you're park. You're going to knock it out of the park. Um, and, and so we've shifted. Again, let me, let's just go through it again. We've shifted out of vacation trips. Uh, kids are back to school, preparing for Elul, and so too do the Torah portions now shift uh, from the first three Torah portions. Now we're entering Re'eh, and Re'eh is already, we're, we're talking about the book of Deuteronomy, the book of things. I got things to tell you, says Moses. We're entering the uh, chapters uh, 11 and 12 and onwards in the book of Deuteronomy, the last book, and if uh, you totally forgot because we weren't here last week, this is one long Moses speech. The book of De Deuteronomy begins with Moses sitting the Jewish people down in the plains of Jericho on the Moab side and giving them a 30-day speech. And uh, the first uh, few chapters were really very much about remembering the, the, the victories of the past, the sins of the past, uh, and, and kind of philosophical and things like the Kriyat Shema and, and the, the central phrase of Judaism, the... the, the, the commandment to bless God after eating food, Amazon. Now we're entering a different phase here in, um, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. This phase is when Moses is like, okay, let's get down to some brass tacks. This Torah portion, we're going to have things like kashrut. We're going to learn about meat and milk. We're going to learn about which animals you can and cannot eat. Uh, we're going to learn about false prophets. We're going to learn about all kinds of things that have to be actually done. Because that's Judaism. Judaism isn't a lot of feelings and tikkun olam and all these phrases. 
It's actually the action of serving God, how to do it. Here's the secrets. Here's what God demands of you. And the first major uh, impulse of this Torah portion, which is different, is that there's going to be a recurring meme that there is going to be a place decided down the line. Not yet. Moses says, I don't kind of know it yet. It's going to be decided down the line. It's going to be, let's look at uh, chapter 12, verse 5, and it's going to say, you're supposed to smash the pillars and the altars of the foreign gods. By the way, I just learned that Islam, before the Allah God, there was idolatry called Alat, and that the Mecca stone, the Kaaba stone, is really a cultic site. So I wonder sometimes about the whole monotheistic... Uh, Meaning in terms of the lady doth protest too much? Yeah. <laughs> so he says, so so uh, uh, total non sequitur. It says you have to destroy the high places uh, of other gods. Uh, you got to smash their pillars, their sacred trees, burn them in fire, their carved images, cut down. You shall obliterate their names from that place. And I'm adding the word but. But you shall not do this to Hashem your God. Rather, only at the place that Hashem your God will choose from among all your tribes to place his name there shall you seek out his presence and come there. I.e., it hasn't been decided yet, but there will one day be a King David and he'll one day find a Jerusalem and he'll one day recover the place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, the place from which the world was created, the, the Temple Mount, and the um, foundation stone, the foundation stone, the, um, what do we like to call the foundation stone? Uh, I think that's what we call it, the place from which the world began. Right. Uh, the, uh, I just ex- alluded me the Hebrew right now because I was thinking in English. Oh, Evan Shtia. Evan Hashtia. Evan Hashtia. From which the world, the rock from which Sh- things. Shotet et olam. Right. It, which it, it emerged from. emerged, yes, flowed outwards. Right. So one of the things that's so powerful for me in this um, hint toward what will be is the notion of process because we know there is actually a very detailed description of a location in this week's parasha. And where is it? It's the Mount Grizim the Eval. Right. Right? We get an intense, the only comparable description. Just explain what that is. These are the two mountains which dominate the city of Shechem on which the children of Israel were enjoined to, to have this beautiful ceremony of the blessing and the curse. Right? That the people would stand divided on mountains and the, and, the, and the Levim would be below and they would say, cursed be the man who does such and such and they would say, amen and then they would turn toward the mountain of blessing and say, blessed be the one who does such and such. You know, it's a very beautiful description. You can see it there. But my point is And is the that Torah is going out of its way to tell you exactly where that mountain it's is. It's amazing. The level of description of location there is comparable right. only to one other place I'm aware of in the Tanakh, which is Shiloh. You know, you get the description of Shiloh, it's like three or four lines I'm going to drag us through it right now because I don't know it by heart. I'm going to look it up. But it's like three or four lines of very specific direction. And there's an important link here because the building of the altar at Grizim and the Mount of Bracha right, is the beginning of the spiritual occupancy, so to speak, of the land. Right? That's where the covenant finds its first root in the land. It had always been across the Jordan. It had been wandering since it came out of Egypt and at Sinai, right? And so the process begins at Grizim in many ways. And then where do they put the tabernacle, the wandering, you know, uh, the wandering house of God that we've been carrying? Where is its first lasting location? At Shiloh for 369 years, right? And, you, in, and meaning the people knew going over 
two steps in the process. And yet they also knew zeloze, as we say in Hebrew. It's not, it's not it. And it's really important. It's not the I last think, stop of the trip. It's train. not the last stop of the trip. And I think it's so important for our day. Because I think there's such a huge challenge that many people feel in our day. It's like we've, we've arrived. Here we are. We're in the land of Israel. We've got a state. We've got an army. We've got an economy. And yet, when we realize that that, that we solve many problems, we don't know how to deal with our enemies, we are, are the moral fabric of our society is very challenged, our spiritual vision is very stunted. So the answer to that is, yeah, great, look. Right? There's always an aspirational element to God's vision for the world. And our goal as a people is to hold fast to what we have, take the directions which were given, very specific, and yet hold that hope of a broader horizon, a, a, a deeper connection, which, of course, Yerushalayim represents in our consciousness. And it says, you, you have to actually seek out. Yes. There's really two ways to understand that verse. One, one is seek out that place, find it, look for it. It's going to be hidden. It's a little bit like, where's Mikdash? Where's Waldo, you know? Yeah. But it also means like... Um, you got to work to make his abode. You, you've got to lidrosh shichno. You got to like try to make sure that God gets that abode, and then it says ubatim shama and get there, go there. Yeah, I would almost um, add to that and deepen it and say it's actually our desire and our seeking that makes the abode. Right? Meaning, meaning, especially now, because the question is, well, okay, that's very nice, Mike Yishai. It says makom and it's a the place which God will choose, and that's a nice theme. But the reality is, once God chose Jerusalem as it's clear from all of the commentaries from the, the Mishnah onwards. So that's the place. There is no more seeking. Now, the answer is exactly what you just said. No, now the challenge is even greater because here we are. We're seeing in Jerusalem right now, but do we really want it? Are we really seeking God's presence? Is it a, a, just in the same way that, you know, if you bless, you make the blessing after a meal, right, after a full meal, um, you, I hope you know this, that one of the dinim, one of the laws, is that if you don't mention how desirable the land is, Eretz Chemda, you have not fulfilled your obligation. Why? We're here. We're eating the fruits of the land. Chemda, desire, is something you don't have yet that you want. That's exactly the answer. You know how you, you don't get satisfied and settle on your lees and, and just, you know, sort of like, you know, lose sight of your big aspirations? You got to want it. You got to want, want it and it. seek it. You got to want it. You got to be passionate about it. And you got to talk about it in passion. Yes. You got to talk about it in passion. And when you talk to your th- with your kids, with your neighbors and friends, show that passion for Israel. And for Jerusalem and for his holy place. It's like, it's like if we, I, I, sometimes I'm driven crazy by like people will say something to you in kind of such a kind of, you, you know, as though it's some great mitzvah to be totally, to have total equanimity. On, on the one hand, it's good to have, there's, there's definitely, it's good to be stoic. You got to know that everything is from God. Right. You don't want to be reactive. Right. But on the other hand, like, like. Be, see, see how Moses is passionate about the land. Have that passion about the land. When I see people, yesterday, last night, late night, I met with a Jew, with an older Jew, who I was just so inspired by just his energy, just his love for, for the land of Israel. Uh, and, of course, I know a lot of people who are involved in also the Temple Mount reconstruction of the vestments, a reconstruction of, 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 of understanding how the temple looked, the study of it. I know a whole kolel. In fact, there is a kolel in my building called Beit Midrash Zichron Moshe, which is what they what they do is that they actually study the laws of the temple. That's just what they do. They study the laws of the temple day in and out. It's just that that is their thing. Um, and so check out their website, Z-I-C-H-R-O-N-M-O-S-H-E, Zichron Moshe.org. You've heard of boutique wineries. 
but this is a boutique yeshiva. If you want to help them, uh, even the smallest donation will make a difference for them. It's small boutique, and they're studying the laws of the temple. All right, so Moses is, um, is telling us all about... Um, the, 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 fir- the first concept is there's going to be a place. Destroy the other altars and make a central altar. Rabbi Mike Fuer, one time I was flown down to a lot to do some filming, and I flew from Tel Aviv to a lot, and it flew right next to the Temple Mount over the window. Uh, and I saw the Temple Mount from above. And there's a lot of pictures. A lot of us have Temple Mount consciousness, but like, just if you can give me in a short way for people to understand what's the deal isn't god here and there and everywhere what is the deal with god in the sense that he made a little ball that's the third ball from the fiery ball which there's many millions of other fiery balls like that and within this fiery ball three three balls out is this blue world within this blue world is a whole beautiful life-filled world as opposed to all the other planets that don't have that and then within that world there is an area it doesn't even look it looks nice it's beautiful but it's like i don't know and then somehow in this area in this in this in this war-filled area and troubled-filled area there's a spot and in that spot is 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 an outcropping of a hill and that outcropping of a hill is where God created the world from Adam was born from Abraham came and sacrificed his son. Actually, it also says uh, that that he actually circumcised himself on that spot and the first drop of blood hit the ground. God said he wants his, his the Mizbech, the altar there. What is that all about? What is that all about? Like what what is it about that God wants a specific place in this world? A lot of people have a hard time wrapping their mind around that. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the biggest challenges in my mind. The bigger question is I call this the problem of embodiment. Right? You have an ideal. Call it love, call it holiness, call it truth, whatever ideal you may hold. And as long as it remains an ideal, then it can be perfect and you can, you can worship it. The challenge is when you try to make it real in the world, right? Love is messy, right? Your ideal of love may not always stand up to your relationship with your spouse or your child or your friend or your parent, right? But the reality is there's no such thing as love in the abstract, right? Love as the quintessential point of connection in all relationships requires there be a real other. And in the same way, Kedusha, the idea that the divine permeates the world in which we live and invites us into relationship, is an ideal, no question. And you're absolutely right. God is everywhere. God created that all. And from God's perspective, it is all one. But what God desired, as far as we can tell, and our sages teach us, and this is why you and I exist and can have this conversation today, is God desires relationship. And if there's going to be relationship, there has which is to weird. be. Which is weird because he created us. Not only that, but there is nothing other than God from right. God's perspective. So this is all our own struggling to understand the meaning it's of like our existence. It's like he created the ultimate other. Because Absolutely. he is everything. So Listen, why did he create an in, other? Uh, in order that there could be relationship. Because, right. it, because you know what? Separation is actually the necessary precursor to all relationship. We tend to think of relationship as connection, which it is, but we often miss the fact that you don't have a relationship with your foot. It's part of who you are. Right. Right? You have a relationship with other. and, and with that other is people's the, feet. Well, hopefully not. But okay. um, the, that is the painful challenge of all relationship, of all also the problem of manifestation, taking some ideal from within yourself and attempting to make it real in the world means it's going to be messy. It's got to be specific. And th- this is the essence of what's happening on the Temple I understand Mount. what you're saying. You're saying to have a relationship, there's got to be a specific place, it's not be a, place a general place. And a time. If I said to you, you know, I love you, 
I want to be with you. Meet me. What would you say? I'd say where. And when. When. Yeah. And perhaps what should I wear? Or you at least (laughs) ask yourself those questions, right? Because otherwise it's just an abstraction and it remains a longing unfulfilled, right? But if you're going to meet, there's going to be a where and there's going to be a when. And the where is the Temple Mount and the when is, of course, Shabbat. Shabbat or uh, the ultimate when and where and who is when the Kohen Gadol, the, the, the high priest, comes into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, on Yom Kippur. Which we call Shabbat Shabbaton. Shabbat Shabbaton. The Sabbath of Sabbath. The ultimate Sabbath. And that's coming, folks. Let it be soon. Let it be now. It's coming right now. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're starting to uh, try to grapple with the issues of, uh, of embodiment. Uh, and that's really tough for a God who has no body. That's right. Uh, uh, we have a little bit too much body ourselves sometimes. Um, hopefully we'll lose some of that weight from the summer steaks uh, and beer and beer. Um, when it says about that very place, uh, also right after the verse that we read, that, that you shall seek out his presence and come there, it says, and, and there you shall bring your elevation offerings and feast offerings, your tithes, and what you raise up with your hand, your vow offerings and your free will offerings and your firstborn of your cattle and your flock. You shall eat there before God. Hashem, your God, and you shall rejoice with your every undertaking, you and your households, as Hashem, your God, has blessed you. The theme of joy is a recurring theme in this week's Torah portion. It'll come back in the holidays, especially right at the very end of the Torah portion. Enjoy. Do it in joy. Do it in joy. And there's something so deeply philosophical because those questions that I just asked a second ago there is frustration that could come with that. Absolutely. This is the answer to your question. Right. Which is that if you look at the imperfection of the world, you know, my inability to ever, ever really express my love. If I'm a creative person, the, the incapacity of my hands to really articulate my inner vision, right? That could just lead you to despair and rejection of the world. Right. Like the world's terrible. I want to stay in this inner state forever. Or what you could say is, oh, but I can, I can really try. I can have a relationship. It's messy. But it's exciting, right? You can rejoice with the fact that you've been given the opportunity. And that's why this beautiful phrase here, Behol mishlach yedchem, right? In, in everything like which you send out your hand to do, take joy in it. Why? Because sometimes we fail. Sometimes it's imperfect. Why would I take joy in everything I do? And the answer is because what I'm taking joy in is the fact that I can do it, that I have the opportunity to make, to be, to enter into relation, even though sometimes it's going to fail. It's going to be a mess. And it says there you should eat there, eat there, meaning to say eat there like like I created you and I'm God. I don't need to eat and be your people and you may be a kind of lower creature, but like eat there and be happy. Well, you know, you could say that the first commandment, what was the first commandment? The first commandment was pru or vu. Well, actually, what God says to Adam there, it's a bit of an argument. It seems that wasn't a commandment. It was a blessing. The commandment to pru vu was to Noah. We'll put that one aside. That's an argument. What's the next one? Uh, what's the next one? Don't eat from the tree? Right, except that's not what God says. It says, says eat. Right. You shall surely eat from every tree, but not that one. Right. So what's the first commandment? Est, kinder. Est. Eat. Eat something. <laughs> that's why I made this world. Oh, it's true. You shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. I'm going to tell uh, you there's bad things in the world, and so I'll tell you how to get along. But don't miss the point. The point is not to hold back. The point is to eat. Embrace the world. Yeah, it's messy. It's imperfect. It's embodied. But Givalt, it's the only thing you have. It's life. Choose life. You know, 
as you talk about this, I want to take a tiny break from our uh, regularly scheduled broadcast here. So talk for a second about a dear Jew passed away this week. Mm, who certainly loved life. Who certainly loved life and gave us a lot of joy in life. Made us, made us joy. In, and just to think about many of, of the moments uh, that he gave us just bring you joy in life. And, and that was Gene Wilder who passed away. Now, I don't know much about Gene Wilder's life. I really don't. Except for his comic genius. Yeah, his comic genius. Um, and you know, had those a tragic marriage. His wife died very young. Gilda Radner. Yeah, you know, and there was like there, there was a whole Jewish group there, Mel Brooks, and uh, and the, these these prodigies that he found. And Gene Wilder, uh, for me, and I think for you as well, uh, really a lot of people remember him for Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Um, but I think that the real um, the real the real Gene Wilder for a lot of us is uh, the Frisco Kid. No question. Right. And this is the tale of a, of a rabbi who goes from Poland to America, right? He goes to, <laughs> to America and he, fight and, he, and he meets with Harrison Ford, who is, a, who is a, a, a bandit, a cowboy bandit who gets him across the United States to, to San Francisco. He says, in the beginning of the movie, he says, where is San Francisco? And they say, he says, uh, next to New York, by New York, by New York. That's what he tells him, the, the, the <laughs> chief rabbi. And he goes to these great adventures and uh, it's really a very beautiful story. Uh, on the one hand, for me, there's a tad of sadness about that story because it's also the story about American Jewry, you know, coming from Europe and sure. and becoming an American Jew. Uh, but at the same time, it was a very beautiful story about about also the love of Torah. Uh, mm-hmm. the, his most prized possession was Torah. Uh, and one time, uh, he loses the Torah. I- Indians find it, and he goes back and he and, and he faces these uh, these uh, hostile Indians, and they become his friends because they see that he's willing to die for Torah. He's like, "Would you die for Torah?" He's like, yes. You know, he'll give away everything, even your knife. I don't have a knife, <laughs> Rabbi with no knife, and um, just just a just a great story uh, about about Judaism, about about um, uh, about meeting the nations. And my favorite part in that whole movie. Is this part where where Gene Wilder, the rabbi character, meets he he he's he's he had he's been uh, uh, hoodwinked by these by these uh, you know trickers thieves they've taken all of his stuff he's got nothing and has suddenly he sees fellow Hasidic Jews and he runs up to them and he says landsman landsman and they answer him in some kind of German uh, or Dutch Dutch. And, and then he uh, passes out. And he passes out when he sees that one of them has a cross on him. That's when he wakes up. No, 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 no. That's later on. And the, he sees a tiny little Bible with a cross. And he just, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he just passes out. And later on, it turns out that it's the Amish. And the Amish are very nice to him. And, he, and in the movie, he puts on tefillin. He puts on tefillin and he prays. And these Christian kids, these, uh, these Plymouth Rock kids are, are, are looking at him. And and then they come up to him, these Christians, and they say to him, "You should have. We we have decided that you should have these ten dollars for the train to Akron. We're sorry it could not be more." And he looks at them and he says, "He looks at them and he says, I will never forget thy kindness." I I always I always tear up at that at that at that that, that point in the movie. Anyway, Gene Wilder uh, played a Jew. Uh, he passed away this week. And what can I say? I would add one thing, which is there's a, a beautiful story in the Gemara. That one of the sages is walking in the marketplace with Eliyahu, with the prophet Elijah. And, of course, no one else can see him. But, and he asks Eliyahu, is there anyone in this marketplace who has a portion in the world to come? So Eliyahu looks around, and there's a few iterations of the story. But at a certain point, he says to him, yes, those two men there, 
they they have a portion in the world to come. So the sage walks up to them and he says, "Well, who are you? What do you do?" You know what they say? We're late sanim. Right. We're jokers. We're clowns. Right. Right. And and he's, "What do you do?" He says, "Well, when we see people who are sad or fighting, we try to cheer them up and make them laugh." And I, I think it really bears reflection that um, someone who was so Jewish in his essence and um, the idea of putting on tefillin on, and in a movie, by the way, in his age, was not something simple. I, I don't think you could see it today. Uh, I, I, I would never have seen such a thing. It is not something simple. Right. It's a the true expression of identification. Um, and, and yet, clearly... He's, he's, he puts on phylacteries and he's, and he's swaying back and he, forth and he says the prayers out loud. Right, right. It's very moving. The essence of what I see or how I experienced him in the world was the desire to bring joy, right? And, and that's a redemptive desire, and uh, it should be a blessing for his memory. I don't know if Gene Wilder uh, knew that he would be eulogized on, uh, on Spiritual Cafe in Jerusalem uh, in the middle of a Torah segment, and uh, that's, that's kind of cool. That makes me feel happy. I've always, I've always appreciated him, like in a real way, like in an active way. Not like in a passive way, like, oh, yeah, gosh, that guy's gone. I really like him. No, no, no. I always thought this is a special man. Of course, we didn't mention Willy Wonka, Vahule, but Gene Wilder, may your memory be a blessing. Amen. Um, now, let's talk about a different kind of Jew, a bad Jew. <laughs> the bad Jew. And this, <laughs> this bad Jew is the false prophet. Ooh. This is an important segment um, and one that I think that sometimes some of my friends who are of different religions should, should read over well in order to understand that sometimes uh, there are people who are false prophets and that swaying people from proper Judaism and observance of the Torah in what it says. And anybody who comes and says to you, oh yeah, that stuff is no longer relevant. Somebody says to you, Saturday, Sunday, that's not right. Somebody says to you, yeah, Jew, it doesn't matter anymore if you eat pig or not eat pig because it's fine. Okay, these are, these, are, these are non-true statements. And the Torah goes on and talks to you about the false prophet. This is chapter 13, book of Deuteronomy. If there should stand up in your midst a, a prophet or a dreamer of a dream, and he will produce for you a sign or a wonder, and the sign and the wonder comes about of which he spoke to you saying, let us follow gods of, other, uh, of others that, did not, that you did not know, uh, and we shall worship them. Do not hearken to the words of that prophet or to that dreamer of a dream. For Hashem your God is... Testing you to know whether you love Hashem, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul. So if a guy comes and he makes even, even miracles purportedly, meaning that he may even have powers or, or at least sure. presto digitation. Or even real powers. Or real powers. Uh, don't follow him. Why? Hashem, your God, shall you follow and him you shall fear. His commandments you shall observe. And to his voice you shall hearken. Him shall you serve and to him you shall cleave. And that prophet and the dreamer of a dream shall be put to death, for he has spoken perversion against Hashem your God, who takes you out of the land of Egypt and who redeems you from the house of slavery to make you stray from the path of which Hashem your God has commanded you to go. So that's one. Uh, there's another guy. The Maceet. The Maceet, right. So this guy, uh, if your brother, or the son of your mother, or the son of your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your friend, who is like your own soul, will entice you secretly, saying, let us go and worship the gods of others. That you did not know, nor did your forefathers, from the gods of the other peoples around you, those near to you, far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not accede to him and not hearken to him. Uh, your eyes shall not take pity on him. 
you shall not be compassionate nor conceal him. Rather, you should surely kill him. Um, and it goes on from there to talk also about the wayward city, a whole, a whole uh, wayward city that, that, that has followed the bad path and how you basically have to lay waste to that city. So we have the, 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 the tension between what we talked about before, God's got a high place, make it, build it, yearn for it, help create it. The other guys who are competing narratives do not try to uh, have a liberal attitude towards the competing narratives and understand that they have their place. We all see things from different perspectives. You know, If you see it from their side, they would say the same exact thing. I hear that all the time. No, 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 no. There, you, God says, I, I'm a jealous God. Don't, don't make competition for me. I'm the winning narrative. Help my narrative win in this world. Yeah, I, I want to throw a slight nuance in that, which is that the issue here is on the activism on behalf of that. Meaning, a person well, has have, to have... The other yes, force is an activist. A, a person also. has to have clarity on the source of truth and revelation. Right? The Rambam points out that Sinai was not based on miracles. And that the reason Sinai was necessary, he says, well, how come ten plagues, splitting of the Red Sea following pillar of fire, bringing down the mountain. Wasn't that enough? Couldn't God have just given the people the Torah then? And the Rambam says that any faith which is based on miracles will always have yesh badofi, he says. There's some sort of um, sort of like weakness in there. He says what happened at Sinai was we actually heard truth. However you want to understand that for now. So therefore, anyone who comes along afterwards, it asserts to you because of, first of all, signs and wonders, we say, Feh, what do I care? Ooh, you're a magician. Wow. You know, I might have the question, like you said, why? Why would God let you do that? The answer is testing you. So, no, what's your relationship to truth? Do you really care? Do you do what's true because it's true? Or do you do what's true because someone told you so or because you're afraid of the consequences or because, hey, this is what we always have done? No, the Rambam says you need to do what's true because it's true. Right? Number one. Number two, the other thing is what we're fighting against is the people who, who are trying to undermine. Meaning, you know... Somebody over there wants to believe what they believe over there. The Torah doesn't really have issues with that. They might say they're wrong. The challenge is, is that why does someone need to seek, and we see this throughout Jewish history, which is one of the great indicators in my mind that we're on to something, is that the world will not let us be. Will not let us be. Why is it that the Jews have to be wrong? They have to be wrong. There's always somebody trying to tunnel in, bore in under, try to deconstruct the text, you know, historicize and contextualize our narrative, et cetera, et cetera. The modern state of Israel is like a, is a great example. Listen, the truth is, post, you know, let's go World War I, there were a lot of countries that, that came into being in the world. Let's just look at it that way. Is there any other country that came into being in the wake of the colonialist breakup that has as much flack about our right to exist as we do? No. That itself just begs a big question. But see, the key is, is that this is not an ideological battle, in my opinion. And so there, there is, for a, therefore, a space for uh, a, pluralist, a pluralism of thought. The difference is, is that it has to be within the context of a commitment to truth. I just I lament sometimes that I find that the, Jew, the state of Jewish mindset is to be way too tolerant with, with competing narratives. And sometimes I find that Jews are oftentimes the biggest uh, promoters of competing narratives. I, I literally get in front of groups these days and I say to them at some point you do know that Zionism is not the creation of Palestinian state you, you do realize that that is not the actual 
great goal of Zionism because we've been here for a half an hour and we're talking Zionism and yet all I'm talking about here with you is the you know creation or non-creation of Palestinian state it's just like we we, we, we lose we lose a lot of times and and our, our nature is to be tolerant our nature is to be tolerant to some extent uh, but at the same time God says to you over and over again you know I, I want you to have a certain clear the path for me let me shine. Yes. Let my narrative let my narrative reign even in the small land and there'll be a light unto the nations. And that process has to begin within each individual. And that and that's the big difference. That was the breakdown that happened with the enlightenment and the emancipation. Right? That the before that the sort of corporate existence of, of Jewish life, how we were all part of one entity within a larger uh, sort of uh, context of the non-Jewish world, basically meant that individualism had to be suppressed in service of Service of the whole, service of survival, and serv- what, ha- what have you. Enlightenment and emancipation freed the individual, as was true, by the way, in, in Europe as well, not just for the Jews. Right? And there was a huge challenge there, which we have not yet overcome, which is that when, it was sort of when, if I cede the right of an individual to freedom of conscience, freedom of action, then how do I, as an educator, nevertheless, impress upon them the importance of truth? Right? Because here what you're seeing is, well, well, uh, I'll burn your city down, lay waste to it, as you said, and, and I'm going to kill that guy who told you to go worship the Baal. Today, we don't live in a world in which we exercise those rights, and philosophically, I personally am glad about it. Still, though, some of the best leaders in Israel are a lot of times the ones that have certain autocratic tendencies. And in fact, I have found that all leaders that I've met who are successful leaders have an element of being able to push their will through by hook or by crook, and to actually overcome all the various voices and not give heed to all the various voices and get it done by actually, like, impressing their will upon others. No question, but the difference between a leader who does that in a way which is healthy and sustainable and one who does it as a, as a tyrant is that the art of leadership in a democracy, and forget democracy as a political system, in a democratic culture, meaning that I as a leader recognize the autonomy of individuals, and their right to life and liberty and, and freedom of conscience. The art then is for me to be able to overcome their short-term interests in service of my vision of their long-term interests. Right? Like you want to think about the power of the last time America, the great democracy of the world, went to war for real was World War II. And you know how hard it was for Roosevelt and the rest of the leadership echelon of, of America to convince the country to go to war? It was almost impossible because people didn't want to pay the short-term price. Right. In the end, it took the disaster of Pearl Harbor to push them over the hump when they realized, wow, we need to bite the bullet, literally, in order to actually live a better life in essence. That's one of the great problems of this country's leadership because short-term, we're really good at that. And, and, and uh, thank God, we're, it's getting us by. The problem is, what's the long game here? See, because it's messianic, left and right. On the left, it's the messianic universalism, right? And on the right, it's the sort of messianic, at least today, it takes the guise of a messianic particularism of, of, of an almost medieval vision of a, of a return to a past, right? And, and, and I don't think any leadership we have today is willing to break those molds or even really go for it. I mean, the left actually tried, mind you. They just failed. One thing that I think is messianic that's happening right now and that we don't give enough credit to our prime minister, is the messianic level infrastructural change that's happening in the country right now. The roads are being widened now. Trains are being built right now. I drove up to Naharia, lots of, lots of building. And just in general, there's a sense I have 
that, that underneath it all, there is a deepening of the infrastructural preparedness for something much bigger. Yeah, but I hate to strike a negative note on that, but where's the long-term thought about our environment? Because I'll tell you what, as I watched the country flood out into the parks and onto the roads and, and you know, into the byways of our country, I also see the tremendous damage, that the, the, the concern for, a, for a, an attitude of husbandry, of really loving this land and nurturing it with a long-term vision, needs to be hand-to-hand together with that short-term desire to get from point A to point B faster, smarter, smoother, which I'm behind. I'm behind 100%. And I agree with you that our prime minister has done an amazing job in making this economy grow and investing it in the infrastructure. I'm with you that. But there needs to be also a long – and this is the problem. How many people are willing to give up some percentage of their daily comfort in order that we have clean water, fresh air, trees, and spaces for our children 100 years from now? Mm -hmm. That's the challenge. How do you sell that? Very good, very good. Well, here's here's a little phrase for for us to think about how we we should we should see ourselves. Maybe like when you have a proper self image, also that helps you create the, everything else in that image, the the state that we're entrusted Absolutely, with. Yeah. And chapter fourteen has a great little paragraph which I like very much. I'm a big fan of this paragraph. And before I I, I read it, uh, I just want to say that in my mind there are three different names that the Jewish people have, and that is Hebrew, Jewish. And Israel. So the Ivri, Yehudi, Israeli, Hebrew, Jewish, and Israel. Okay, and I've my my system that I've developed goes just very quickly goes like this. Hebrew is the is the ethnicity. Our peoplehood is Semitic Hebrew. Okay, as a tribe, we are we are a Hebrew, who are we? We are Hebrew people in our body. And if a if a Hebrew is by himself totally by himself and doesn't know any Judaism, his hardware is still Hebrew. That man is a Hebrew. And I can prove it from different verses. Uh, but the bottom line is, and, and there are some verses that contradict, but on the whole, Hebrew means the body, the hardware. Judaism is the software. Judaism is everything that we talk about on this show. It's the stories of the Jewish people. It's from Gene Wilder to, to the temple. It's Judaism is, is, is our language to, 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 to our culture, to... to the, the way we say, oi, to, to really serious things about, about Jewish law and Talmud, okay? All that is, is Judaism, and that's also what sets us apart. A lot of times, for example, in the Megillat Esther, there's a people who have a different way about them, and therefore they're Jewish. They may not be coalescing into a tribe right now, or into a, I don't know about their ethnicity, maybe that's different or not different, but they have behaved differently. That's called Judaism. That's our set of values, knowledge. That's the whole software. That's everything. Your heart, your, by the way, your computer without software is just nothing. It doesn't do anything. It it's a heavy know, piece of plastic. Right. It doesn't know how to do anything. It needs software. So the hardware is Hebrew. The software is Jewish. But when we get together as a people in our land, in our what I call tribal configuration, that is called Israel. That is Israel. And in my opinion, people say to me, are you Jewish first or Israeli? I go, of course I'm Israeli first because Israeli is the ultimate identity of the Hebrew Jewish people. A Hebrew person practicing Judaism in the land of Israel with fellow Jews is called an Israeli, an Israelite, a children of Israel. That is the highest form of our identity. Yeah, but you know what game they're really playing. They're, I know. They're, they're, they're trying to say statism versus uh, religion. your religion. So do you put the state and nationalism, democracy, whatever in front of God. And I'm just like, I don't buy into that paradigm. Well, it's because it's a dualism that doesn't exist in the Torah. Right. That's right. And, and, also, and, also, and also, I just, I'm not going to accede to that. I, people say to me, by the way, are there Israeli Arabs? I say, no, there are no Israeli Arabs. There are Arabs with the citizenship of the state of Israel, for sure. 
but in Israeli is an identity. It's a, it's a Hebrew Jew in the land of Israel. We get, we could talk that one out later. We can, there's, yeah, I, I, there's a I, new identity emerging there, but we can uh, speak about. We it can later. talk about that later. But look at this at this paragraph here. It says like this: You are children to Hashem your God. You shall not cut yourselves, and you shall not make a bald spot between your eyes for a dead person. For you are a holy people to Hashem your God, and Hashem has chosen you for Himself to be a treasured people from amongst all the people of the face of the earth. So. Here, there's also three names. Banim, you are children. Am Kadosh, you are holy. And Am Skula, you are special. To me, those are exactly the same thing. The first one is the hardware. You are children to God, physical children to God. Second is that you're a holy nation. That is your Judaism. That's how you behave. And thirdly, you're a special people. When you're together in Israel, you're a light unto the nations, and you could do school also means not just treasured, but enable people. You're able to do so much. That is the three things. When we have that sense about ourselves, that we are children unto God, we're a holy people, and when we're together, we could do incredible things with that name Israel, you know, then, then you're right. Then we don't feel like a minority. We feel like a, an incredible force in this world. What's special to me about this paragraph is that it, it um, there's a very important idea planted in the middle of it that all those three names revolve around, and that's death, right? And it cannot be undervalued, the shadow that death casts on human society, right? People in the modern Western world, right, since the, uh, since the Enlightenment and then ultimately the birth of existentialism have mocked religion as a basically a psycho-emotional thumb-sucking method to avoid the fear of death, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And yet here we see a clear message of what the Jews are. Like when, when we keep repeating this phrase, Uva heart of the Chaim, choose life, choose life, that doesn't just mean we don't blow ourselves up and try to take others with us. What it means is we understand that life does not end with death, right? And therefore, why? Like what's the commandment here? Don't cut yourself, don't shave your heads, right? Because of death, because you're a holy people. What's, like, what's the connection? We're not allowed to look that way? And some people say, and then some of the commentators say, no, no, don't disgrace yourselves. You need to look good. You need to look like you're okay. But, you know, there's a whole other path that the commentators take here in saying this, is that you actually shouldn't get that upset when someone dies. Of course, it's a tragedy. The people we love, you and I both lost people that are close to us, right? So it, one should never undervalue the sort of um, emotional impact. And yet, what is the Torah teaching us? If you're truly children to God and you understand that you're a holy people and that you have this treasured status, then don't fear death. Don't let it overwhelm your life because the reality is the world is much bigger than you know. And death is a gateway to a larger horizon. And that is a core message that the Jewish people still today need to be pushing to the world. Because so much of what I see as crass, cheap, empty culture in the world today is an attempt to basically whistle through the graveyard. To pretend that we've overcome death, it doesn't exist, people want to live longer, they want to look better, you know, 40 is the new 30, and, and women, are having, uh, women are having children at age 60, and we're going to live to... Not- yeah, but you're still afraid. <laughs> you're still afraid. Don't be afraid, says God. Because why? Because you're a holy people. You're my children. You don't have anything to fear. I was excited about that 40s, the new 30, but you've, you've, you've taken the wind out of no, my No, I'm saying you could be young. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being young. The problem is, is you also have to value age because the reality is the further you move from birth, the closer you get to death. There's no way around it. And, and that's, uh, uh, there's, there's an interesting irony there because, because um, um, we have a concept that zaken, an old person, that's actually a compliment. The skenim were the wise people. But Rabbi Nachman Breslov says, don't be a zaken in anything. Never allow yourself to get old inside. 
So there's a duality. On one hand, be wizened, but don't get old inside. And even though that's the same word. All right, we got about 10 more minutes, and we got so many more issues. Um, this is out of, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, right? Uh, we get these big uh, issues about the temple, about our name, and then God says, um, I don't want you to eat pig. <laughs> and it's going to go through a long litany list of animals that you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the heart, the deer, the yarmuch, the akko, dishon, teo, zamer, right? I took my kids to the biblical zoo. How was that? Awesome. I love it. I love the zoo. What's the rabbi's name there again? Oh, no, I'm not talking about uh, oh, Nathan Sliskin's... Uh, new zoo thing. Yeah, no, I'm just talking about the one here the, in the Jerusalem. The biblical zoo. I like the penguins. Place. Yeah, it is, a, it is a great place. So, um, we saw the Ahmor. The Ahmor. A lot of animals you cannot eat. And then God says, but if you want to know which animals to eat, they're the ones that's easy. The animals that chew their cud and have a split hoof. For example, the camel, the hare, the hyrax, uh, they chew their cud, but their hoof is not split. So they're unclean to you. The pig, he has a split hoof, but not he does not chew his cud. He's unclean to you. And and, and it goes on to that. Then it's going to go to, so there's a system for the, for the uh, fleshy land-walking animals, right? For the um, the for for the for the for the ocean dwelling animals, it's much tighter. It says you've got to have fins and scales. Fins and scales. It's got fins and scales. You can eat it. If it doesn't, unclean to you. And, and by the way, the trick is that anything that has scales has fins, uh-huh. but not all things that have fins have scales. Okay. Which is why when you buy kosher fish, they leave a little bit of skin on it to show you. To see the scales. Yeah, fair. Then um, um, uh, for the birds. It's just, it's, there's no... Exi- there's a list. There's a list. You just got to know. This is the list. <laughs> no, no, no. Please don't. Uh, no, I'm not going to go through it, but it's just, <laughs> it's just so great, the, the, the list. Um, and, 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 and it ends off with a famous phrase, do not, kick a cook, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk, which is, according to our rabbis, a reference to uh, not eating mi- meat and milk together. Or Hashem. Um, so... Um, there's there's what you shall eat. Remember, we said in the beginning, eat. Yeah, you said Esmond Kinder, right? It defines the human experience. I mean, certainly we, the Jewish experience. No, it defines the human experience. Come on, like th- that's sure. what it is to take the world inside oneself and make it part of who you are. Right, right. And and this to me, I always find this a very beautiful, very beautiful portion of the Torah because it's so real, it's so specific. Right, like the midrash says that that Moshe was holding up each animal. I'm not sure how he held up the ox, but whatever. That he would like lift up each one and say, "Here, you can eat this," and everyone would go, "Yay!" And here, don't eat this, and they go, "Ew!" You know, and um, it just it it carries forward this essence of of Jewish experience. And one of the beautiful things we see in the archaeology here in the land of Israel is that even the most sort of secular, anti-religious archaeologists that this country produced know that if you want to prove that a site is an Israelite site from the early time of the settlement here the clearest indication is that there are no pig bones that's right they're just not there speaking of that uh, not very far from where you live is a place called Jabal Muntar yes and that Jabal Muntar has been uh, kind of excavated there is a there is a cliff not far from Jabal Muntar in, in the Jabal Muntar area with jagged rocks and at the very bottom of that cliff with jagged rocks uh, have been found uh, goat bones that have not been eaten. They have decayed in a way that has not been eaten, uh, and they date back to the Second Temple period. It has been pretty much roundly accepted that we have found the place of the Azazel, the place where on Yom Kippur 
the uh, the goat that goes to this the scapegoat the scapegoat gets pushed down off a cliff, and we'll get to that. We'll, we have more time. We got for a few that. weeks. Woo! But don't that, make yeah, me nervous. You just right. made me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Not there yet. But it's we have only L. But it seems like we have found it. We have found the place itself. Yeah, I mean, listen, the the mission gives very specific. Um, directions of the distance from Jerusalem and the nature of the place. So at a certain point, you look at a map, aerial photographs today, there's very few places it actually could be. Right. But we actually have found those those bones. That's what you were saying about the kosherness. Kosher. Kosher defines so much. When, when you think about Jews, you think about kosher. How many cases in law school did I deal with? What is a kosher symbol? The OU, mm-hmm. the Ks. and Kosher um, is, is something... Um, it's one of those few things that you say, oh, yeah, 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 everybody knows that's Judaism. It's the Sabbath. Uh, it's Yom Kippur, maybe. It's, it's kosher, you know? And There's many other things, but, but everybody knows that we don't eat uh, like other people. Yeah, and, and in many ways, who knows? I mean, kashrut is the quintessential chok, right? In the sense that it is a law which God gave, which we will never truly know the reason for. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, like, don't steal, don't kill, you know, don't, uh, et cetera. Like, we understand society doesn't work if people can't respect property right but but what difference does it make i hear this from people what difference does it make what you eat right be a good person right that's a classic claim by the way of christianity it's not what goes into your mouth that matters it's what comes out right which of course we would say no it's both <laughs> right um and yet it functions in a comprehensible manner exactly like you said which is it is a system boundary right and up until modernity really did define the jewish people as a people right who you sit down to table with in a in a comfortable, truly shared way, defines your identity. Now we live in a in a broader and more multicultural world, and yet one of the powers of Jewish law is that it allows you to keep completely within the bounds of the law, and yet to navigate the complexities of relationships with non-Jews moving in foreign cultures. Right? I call this the halachic astronaut. Right? Whenever I go to America or I, I go visit, you know, non-Jewish friends abroad, right, I always feel like I'm I'm totally able to do it. I'm very strict with myself. I'm actually more strict when I'm, I'm abroad than I am with myself here about the details of the law, right? And yet I'm I'm in my spacesuit. I'm there with them, and yet, <sighs> <laughs> right? It's, it's, we're not quite there together. I like that, and and um, that makes a lot of Jews uncomfortable. But I would argue it is the definition of what it is to be a Jew. Right. Is that we have to understand that we as a people are on a different mission. And therefore, in order to fulfill that mission, you, you sometimes you got to go outside the ship. Right. And you got to be there with where the people are. And yet don't kid yourself. You know, keep that mask sealed. I like that. I like that. Halakha Gastron very much. Um, and that that is a chok. And we're going to get to now another set of laws that is discussed in this in this Torah portion. And that is basically. Jewish economics. There's going to be some Jewish economics, state Jewish economics. We're going to talk about uh, the seventh year fallow of the land, but not in the land sense, rather in the economic sense that you have to remit loans. Uh, they will, they will, loans that you're owed can be erased on the, on the seventh year. And then the tithes, the tithes that you're supposed to give um, and you're supposed to bring to Jerusalem, for example, the second tithe that you're supposed to bring on certain years. Um, the whole idea that there is actually economics that that make uh, uh, sense in this land. And I want to tell a, a quick story about that. And that is um, one time I was in 
uh, Gush Katif. If you remember Gush Katif, before it was destroyed, uh, the banks stopped giving loans to um, to the farmers, and uh, many Israelis got together. And Jews the same the reason the Torah warns against, because the banks thought they wouldn't get their money back. Right. They thought they wouldn't get the money back, so they didn't give the farmers the loans. And they were probably objectively right. Correct. But, but there was a fund created called Karen Ma'amino Zorea. Yes. And that fund was a, a, non, a no-interest loan that could turn into a gift in case the, the farmers couldn't give back. I remember I donated... And, and everybody donated. Yeah, we all did. We, we just all did. And, and I remember when I was a few weeks later in Gush Katif proper that I was talking to this lady. Her name is Lawrence. She was a pickle grower, a cucumber grower that turned them into pickles. And she said to me, you know, I want to tell you, Ishai, she, she, wasn't, she's a, she was a traditional woman, but not a regularly observant woman, not a fully observant person. She said to me, I got to tell you something. We have grown crops and the pickles, the cucumbers have grown in half the time. I said to her, I, 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 now she's not a, she's a normative person. She's like, I'm telling you, as a farmer, I'm telling you they've grown in half the time. So I'm like, well, how do you figure? She's like, I think it's the prayers of the people to hold on to Gush Katif. And I said to her, no, you know, I don't think so. I think it's because you used the money that was a no, uh, a no interest loan. And that's the secret of the land. The land says, the God says in this land, don't, take lo- don't t- give non-interest loans. They gave you a non-interest loan and it has uh, worked its miracles and magic on the land. Well, there is a vision. They use the word economics, and I feel like we need to come up with another word. because Toronomics? Uh, maybe, although I'm not so into this sort of... Like Freakonomics? Like, uh, you know? Yeah, that whole thing. Okay. Anyway, but, but why do I say that? It's because economics is embedded in a very particular culture and a way of thought about what money is, private property, the sense of individualism, all these uh, enlightenment concepts. Okay. Whereas what the Torah is speaking about... Um, an intimacy relationship between people and land and people and one another. And so therefore, and there's a value which is meant to emerge, which is expressed through the fact that I'm not looking for interest. I mean, you know, today you speak about interest-free loans and, and everyone say, oh, there's no way a modern economy couldn't work that way because it'll retard investment and because we will invest because of the capital. and da, da, da. Okay, fine, if that's your goal. right? If the goal is infinite growth, which, by the way, we all know now is impossible. And not only that, but that whole economic system has begun to eat the environmental underpinnings of our culture out from under itself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So here comes the Torah and says, how about this? How about you want to live long and prosper? Let's start with that one. Now, how would you do that? Oh, so we got to live. person's got to be able to make money. You are allowed to give loans, but, you, you, but you're not taking the bite. There's no interest. And not only that, somebody gets to the point where they can't pay back. We have to have a system to deal with that. Because the, the key here is the Torah understands is that we are in this together. It's not the rampant individualism that drives the economy today. Verse 7, chapter 15, If there shall be a destitute person amongst you, any of your brethren in any of your cities, in your land that Hashem your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart or close your hand against your destitute brother. Rather, you shall open your hand to him and you shall lend to him his requirement, whatever is lacking to him. Beware, lest there be lawless thought in your heart. Uh, lawless is not how I would translate that. Uh, blial means kind of useless. I well, would say. Well, let's be specific. Blial is is a is a tzeruf. It's a conjugation of bliol without any yoke. You think you're an individual who can do what you want. I don't want. To, I don't have to give him my. my it's my right. money. I earned. No, no, no. That means you think you're out there on your own. You understand? We are in this together. So therefore, when you see your brother, you need to help him out. 
Right. So you should surely give him and do not let your heart feel bad when you give to him. For in return in this matter, Hashem your God will bless you in your deeds and in your every undertaking. For the, listen to this. For the destitute person will not cease to exist within the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall surely open your heart to your brother, to your poor, and to the destitute in your land. The, the idea of, 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 of that, that it's going to always be something that's within our consciousness is to, to give our brother, to he, pick up our brother. There's an incredible statement that the Rambam makes on this Pasuk. You shall surely give him and you shouldn't, like you said, as you, shouldn't, you shouldn't feel bad about it when you do it. So the Rambam says, wait a minute. I understand the Torah says you got to give. Right. Why does it throw in this and don't feel bad about it? Look, it hurts, right? Here I am. I've managed to save a little bit of money. Some guy knocks on my door and says, I need so, okay, I'm going to give it to him. But, oh, I could have used that to go out. I could have used it for this, that. The Rambam says, if you feel bad about what you've done, then you have not done the commandment mm-hmm. at all. That's exactly, that goes back to the first thing we talked about, which is joy. Do it in joy. The, the, the commandments of feelings, of how you do it, how you approach something, we, we want that. We, the Torah is looking for that. It's not only is it looking for it, it's ikar and not tafel. It's the essence and not secondary. I Meaning, at the end of the day, God says, I run the world. Don't be fooled in thinking there's some technical system out there that I, I, like the deists said, right? That I set it all up and I push the on button and you're just like a little rat in the maze trying to figure it out and get right. your little cheese. No, no, no. Your inner life is as real as what's around you. So therefore, not only naton titen, like not your inner life is not enough. You can't just feel good about things and do nothing. You must give. You must but 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 lo yira But you should understand that you should take joy in what you're doing because it's why I created the world. And I mm. promise you, says God, I promise you that not only the giving, but the feeling good about the giving is what will make a world in which you want to live. And the greatest joy that the Torah goes on and on and talks about the importance of the joy is the coming together of the Jewish people three times a year in Jerusalem. That's the last set of commandments in this week's Torah portion, which is a Torah portion called uh, Re'eh. And uh, we are commanded to ingather. We're commanded to make an aliyah within our aliyah, right? You made aliyah, but you got to keep making aliyah. I remember I used to make pins called I'm making aliyah, and then I made a whole set of pins that said keep making aliyah. Like once you're here, keep making aliyah. And that's exactly what we have to do. In fact, uh, I think um, maybe the name of today's show will be Keep Making Aliyah, which is that um, uh, Aliyah uh, within the land three times a year is when you come to Jerusalem and you're supposed to have a high. You're supposed to have a high. You're supposed to be like, wow, like within the land, I've just made Aliyah to Yerushalayim. I touched Yerushalayim. I saw my fellow, I saw God, but I also saw my fellow man. And I was also seen by my fellow man and by God. Lirot ulihiraot. I love that phrase. Lirot ulihiraot. Yeah. Listen, Jerusalem is the original place to see and be seen. That's right. Because, you know, why do people go to, to Fifth Avenue to see and be seen? Because what are they saying? They're saying the standard of our life is money and consumption. So I want you to see me here in my fancy clothes, and I'll see you there to know that this is what life is all about. <laughs> but no, if I'm Israel, the place to see and be seen is on the Temple Mount. Because what's life all about? Life is all about joy through the service of God. Right? And by the way, that also means we're going to eat. And we're going to drink and we're going to be merry. And, and yeah, you can wear fancy clothes too. But don't lose sight of why we're here. <sighs> this Torah portion is so filled with, with the commandments. And I must say that if you don't know this, every one of these things that we discussed are filled tomes of Jewish law and discussion to such a depth and extent, which really for the outsider, you would just be amazed Thousands of years of thought. Thousands of years of, of thought and didactic thought about the verses and, and what they mean. And action. It's, it's, it's so marvelous. I sometimes just, I, I kind of like, uh, 
when I see people either who don't try to study Torah or when I see uh, Gentiles who, who kind of poo-poo the rabbinic Pharisee tradition, I'm just like, that is so dumb. You don't even understand how dumb it is that what you're saying. It's just like the, 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 the depth and the knowledge that's here to, and, and the godly knowledge that's here to be sh- shared with the world is, is of the highest magnitude. And when you're with us today um, here at Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov, sulamyaakov.com, with Rabbi Mike Foyer and myself, uh, you're really um, knocking on the door at the beginning of, of an incredible trail of, of knowledge and connectivity to Torah and the land of Israel. It all comes together. I want to say, Rabbi Mike, that I'm sending out two flags. Uh, first, I'm sending out a flag uh, to Cynthia, who sent a donation to the Yishai Fleischer Show, yishaifleischer.com, uh, a, a very helpful donation. Uh, a meaningful uh, uh, what, a, what meaningful partnership and that's the, the, the language of, of fundraisers and by the way I do work for uh, Hebron the Jewish community of Hebron and really uh, the Jewish community of Hebron is just an offshoot of the fact that the fathers and mothers are buried there and um, um, Hebron needs your help as well and that's where I'm also learning how to, how to fundraise and, and find people who want to connect to the story of the fathers and mothers. But in any case, Cynthia sent in a donation to uh, the show, to what we're doing here, Rabbi Mike, and I'm sending her a flag out to, you know, California, past Sacramento, out there, the, the good folks. And she's also connecting to the local Chabad there, and there's, a, there's an amazing synergy there. So thank you very, very much. I'm also sending a flag to uh, my good friend uh, Eric's family, uh, the, the Ross family, um, you know what? Eric has been a stalwart friend of mine for a long time. God bless him. Uh, and he is a, uh, uh, a Dominican priest. He's actually a monk. Uh, but he's, he's also... He's also a priest. He was ordained recently? Yes. Yes. He's, he's, he's now... Uh, he's, now he's, he's, he's climbing the ropes there. Uh, in, 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 in that world, <laughs> that's all I can say about that. But, but, but he is a good friend. And I appreciate and a so much. A lover of God and a lover of Israel, and so often I appreciate his perspective. But more than that, his family is also part of the story. He's not just one guy. He's part of a whole family who's, who's connected to Israel. They should be blessed. And they sent me a flag of Israel. They sent me a great flag. And you know how it is. Like I buy a flag here in Israel, and it's like made in Taiwan or something, and it's just <laughs> it, 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 it like falls apart in the wind. He sent me an American made in the USA flag of Israel. We're talking about you know I'm talking about. Uh, F two fifty, you know, like a, the truck of, of flags he sent me, you know, the, the 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 Midwest, you know, the you know, the strong America flag, and this thing has been flapping in the wind of Jerusalem, and it's unflappable. Okay, uh, it's flapping, but it's it's un it's unbreakable, and so he's gonna get my flappy flag, uh, uh him and his family, and uh, the good friends out there that are part of the story. There's many more people that I want to thank. I do want to thank Jack. Lillian and Sarah for helping uh, create the show. I want to thank my good friends in Switzerland, which are going to also get the, the next flag that I can get. I'm going to I'm going to try to get two flags from Hebron. Send one to to my good friend Andy, who supported the brand new flag that we put up in Hebron. Uh, I'm going to send him a Hebron flag, uh, and also my my good friend the Michel family uh, out in Switzerland. People, uh, you know, I'm I'm really I want to create a whole like I want to start getting as many flags in Israel that have been flown everywhere and send them out to the world. I really want to create this into a system. In any case, folks, you are listening to the Land of Israel Network, an incredible network. Check out our website, thelandofisrael.com, thelandofisrael.com. Check out hebron.org.il. Check out yishtayfleischer.com. Check out sulamyakov.com. And Rabbi Mike, I just want to thank you. It's great to have you uh, uh, back. 
It's great to be back with you here at Sulam Yaakov and look forward to continuing learning Torah and, and sending out the light of Israel next week. I'm looking forward to it. Listen to that sound of the shofar. That sound of the shofar. That's right. The shofar app is coming soon. Uh, and go to the synagogue. You can hear the shofar app in the morning. God bless you wherever you're out there. Stay strong. Stay connected. Don't let anybody bully you. Bully them right back because you got truth. You got amazing power and light uh, of God that you got to shine into the world. That's his bidding towards us. We are part of something great. Stay tuned. Stay strong. Stay connected. And Shabbat Shalom. Rabbi Isaac Nissenbaum, one of the founders of the religious Zionist Mizrahi movement, wrote, The objective of Mizrahi is the total revival of our nation in all its aspects, to revive Judaism in our hearts and to revive our hearts for Judaism. The Land of Israel Network is powered by the Mizrahi world movement. Do you like picking strawberries or blueberries in the spring and summer? What about grapes? If you were to take an experience like picking grapes and move it to the heartland of Israel, this is when an experience becomes prophetic. Young and old, singles and families are all invited on this adventure of a lifetime. I'm Joshua Waller with Hayuvel, and I invite you to join us on the mountains of Israel where prophecy meets reality. Go to Hayuvel.com, that's H-A-Y-O-V-E-L.com for more information.